0: You are listening to the Sermons Podcast from The North Church in Moundsview, Minnesota. For more gospel-focused resources or information about our church, please visit us at thenorthchurch.com.
1: The sermon text for today is Genesis chapter 3. You'll find it on page 2 of the Blue Bibles under your seats. Again, that's Genesis chapter 3. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life.
0: Let's pray together. Father, please enlighten our minds and soften our hearts as we consider your words to us in Genesis 3. Amen. What kind of story begins with the words, once upon a time? What do we call that? Fairy tale. Do you see those words in chapter 3 anywhere? Or anywhere in Genesis? not there. It's because the Bible is not a fairy tale. The Bible doesn't begin with the words once upon a time. At the beginning of the Bible, God tells the story of the beginning. This is what really happened. And God tells this story with themes that he develops throughout the Bible. Here are some big questions that Genesis 3 answers. Why are we separated from God Why are all humans sinners who deserve God's wrath? Why is there a cosmic war between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring? Why are childbirth, marriage, and work painful? And why do humans die? My mentor, D.A. Carson, defines worldview like this. A reasonably comprehensive interpretation of reality, whether thought through or not, that affects all we do. Everyone has one. We all have a worldview. And this passage, Genesis 3, is foundational to our worldview. It helps us interpret reality. It affects everything we do. We can't make sense of the grand story of the Bible without Genesis 3. And do you know what theologians call this event in Genesis 3? Starts with an F, they call it the, the fall. Yeah, I don't like that term. I think it's too soft. It's almost like Adam and Eve were walking along and then they, they, they stumbled, they tripped and they fell down like it was an accident. Uh, but Adam and Eve in this passage committed high-handed treason against God. They rebelled against God and the result was a global disaster. So, I think a better term than the fall is the crash or the tragedy or the calamity, or I'm going to go with this one in this sermon, the catastrophe. Those are all better, I think, than fall. The catastrophe. A catastrophe is an event that causes great and sudden damage and suffering. So, I'd like to preach to you from Genesis 3 on this topic the catastrophe the catastrophe. When Pastor Jim Boyce, the late pastor, preached through Genesis 3, he preached 15 sermons. We're gonna do it in one, so buckle up. We're gonna consider Genesis 3 in seven scenes. The test, the failure, the response, the punishment, the naming, the sacrifice, and the banishment. Let's start with scene one, the test, whoop, the test right here. The the crafty serpent tempts Eve. That's how it summarizes this. The crafty serpent tempts Eve. Now Adam and Eve in chapter three are in a probationary state. This is a test. Will they choose righteousness or will they choose evil? That's the test, righteousness or evil. Chapter 3 begins, you have your Bible open. Now the serpent, the serpent, let's stop with that word, the serpent. Who is this serpent? This talking snake. So here are five facts about this serpent in Genesis 3 and we'll see them especially in verses 1 to 5. First, fact 1, the serpent is a beast that God created. Look at verse 1 again. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. That's really significant. The Lord God made it. God created the snake and that means that the snake is not God's equal. God doesn't have an equal opponent. He doesn't have someone with equal power or knowledge God is uncreated, the snake is created. Only God exists from himself without depending on anyone else or anything else for his existence. The snake is a creature. So the snake is not independent of the creator. Fact number two, the serpent is deceitful. Deceitful. Look at verse one again. The serpent was more, what's the word, crafty more crafty than any other beast of the field. So the grand story of the universe begins with God's creating the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1 and 2. All's right with the world until this crafty villain enters the scene. His first strategy is not to devour, but to deceive. And the grand story of the Bible progresses with the serpent's strategy alternating between Deceiving as a snake and devouring as a dragon. That's all through the Bible's storyline. Deceiving snake, devouring dragon. Number three, fact three, the serpent deceives, how? By questioning God. And we can't make sense of Genesis 3 apart from the command back in chapter 2, 16 and 17. I'm gonna read that. Chapter 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then we jump down to chapter 3, halfway through verse 1. The snake said to the woman, did God actually say? Did God actually say? He's questioning God. He's not contradicting God right right out blatantly. He's just questioning. He's trying to create doubts. He's trying to make the woman skeptical. So the snake craftily reframes the situation. Instead of emphasizing that Adam and Eve may eat from every tree in the garden, except for one, instead the snake asks, whether they eat from whether they may eat from any tree. So the garden was this paradise of pleasures. All these yeses and one no, just one. And the snake deceives Eve into focusing on that one no as if God is unkind. So at this point in the story, the woman should rebuke the snake. The woman should defend that God is good. But instead, she entertains the idea, you know, maybe, maybe God isn't benevolent. And trustworthy. Maybe God just made up that rule to limit my pleasure. And then she adds these words, neither shall you touch it. She might be embellishing what God commanded. Fact number four about the serpent. The serpent deceives next by contradicting God. So last one was questioning. Now he's straight out contradicting. Verse four, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, first he questions God, and then he just flat out contradicts God. He lies. He blasphemously asserts that God has selfish motives. And this sounds like the person that Jesus describes in John chapter 8. When the devil speaks, he lies. He speaks out of his own character. Why? Because he's a liar and the father of lies. So will the woman's eyes be opened if she eats from this tree at this time? And the answer is yes, but not in a good way. She will know evil by becoming evil herself, and thus she will die spiritually. Her spiritual death will start the countdown to her physical death. And finally, fact number five, and I'm, uh, this is more of a systematic uh, fact from the rest of scripture, this serpent is Satan. And we know this from several other passages. Genesis 3 does not explicitly identify the snake as Satan. But when we read Genesis 3 in light of the whole Bible, we must identify the snake as Satan. One of the key passages is in Revelation 12, which says this, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, listen to these titles, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on its heads seven diadems. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. And it goes on. That's six titles for the same person. Clearly that ancient serpent is Satan. Now, the Bible doesn't specify the precise way that Satan and the the snake relate in the Garden of Eden. Somehow, Satan used the physical body of a snake in the Garden of Eden. So he may have transformed himself into a snake-like creature. He may have entered and influenced one of the existing snakes to accomplish his devious plan. We don't know. Regardless of the precise means, the Bible presents this story of a talking snake as real history, not a myth, a legend, a fable, or a parable. That's scene one, the test. The crafty serpent tempts Eve. Scene two is the failure. The woman is deceived and Adam fails to guard the garden. This is verse six, look at it, verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So remember back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God commissioned his image bearers to rule over the beast of the field rule over the beasts instead of obeying the king they're following the snake the beast of the field is ruling over them in the new testament paul specifies that the serpent deceived eve but not adam listen to 1 Timothy 2:14 adam was not deceived but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Eve was deceived, but Adam was responsible. Eve was not alone. Verse 6 says that Adam was with her. So when Adam ate, he rebelled against God by failing to obey what God commanded. He failed to protect his wife. Remember back in Genesis 2, 15, the Lord says, Uh, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden for this purpose to work it, to cultivate it, and to keep it, or to guard it. God commissioned Adam to rule the earth and guard the garden. But instead, the serpent rules over Adam and Eve. So when God calls to the man and asks, Where are you? It's in verse 9. We're about to get to that. In verse 9, Where are you? That word you is singular in the Hebrew. In English, we might say "you" versus "y'all." "Y'all" would be plural. This isn't "y'all." This is "you." Uh, where are you, Adam? He's directly addressing Adam, not both Adam and Eve. Adam is primarily responsible because he's the head of his wife, and that's why later scriptures in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 blame Adam for the catastrophe. Adam should have killed the dragon and rescued the girl in the garden. He failed. That scene too, the woman is deceived and Adam fails to guard the garden. Here's the response, the man and his wife feel shame and then they blame others. This is verses 7 through 13, let's read that, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew, they they realized that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So Adam's and Eve's sins separate them from God. They're guilty before God, so what do they feel? They feel shame. Their nakedness symbolized their childlike innocence, kind of like how toddlers love to streak around the house after taking a bath. But after Adam and Eve sin, they clothe themselves because they know they're guilty before God. They suddenly feel shame at their nakedness and they hide from God because they're ashamed to be in his presence. Now it's, it's silly in verse 7, Adam and Eve think they can cover their guilt and shame with fig leaves. Or verse 8, it's silly that they think they can hide from God among the trees. It reminds me of playing hide and seek with a toddler. who, a toddler closes his eyes and thinks that he becomes invisible. Or maybe he does this and thinks you can't see him. That's just how silly this is. They think they can hide from God like that. So God addresses Adam and gives Adam the opportunity To confess his sins, to take responsibility for his sins, but what does he do? He makes excuses. So verse 12, Adam blames Eve and ultimately God himself. When he says, the woman whom you gave me, that's implying, hey, you gave her to me. It's your fault. And he's also blaming the woman. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then when God asks the woman and gives her an opportunity to repent of her sins, instead she says, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. It wasn't my fault. The serpent made me do it. So Adam and Eve act like they are innocent victims instead of responsible sinners. Adam points at Eve and at God, and Eve points at the serpent. They blame others. That's scene three, the response. The man and his wife feel shame and blame others. Scene four is the punishment God curses the serpent and the ground and God judges the woman and Adam. So first God curses the snake and promises a snake crusher. This is verses 14 and 15, let's read it. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise or crush your head, and you shall bruise or strike his heel. Now, God may have originally created the snake with legs and wings, as in our popular pictures of dragons, but because of the snake's deceit, God humiliated the snake. By forcing it to slither on its belly in the dust. As a result, how do we describe snakes? We call a snake a reptile that is long, limbless, without eyelids. and moves over the ground on its belly with a flickering tongue that makes it appear to be eating the dust. And God cursed not only the snake, but also the snake's offspring. He cursed them with enmity, verse 15. And the rest of the Bible's storyline traces this ongoing battle between the snake's offspring and the woman's offspring. The first seed of the serpent is Cain in chapter 4. He kills his brother Abel. The serpent, Jesus explains in John 8, was a murderer from the beginning, and Cain was the first human murderer. So humans are either children of God, that's children of the woman, or the offspring of the, of the woman, or they're children of the devil, offspring of the serpent. And instead of continuing through Abel, the seed of the woman continues through Seth. Eve says in Genesis 4.25, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And that line, the offspring of the woman, continues through Seth, all the way to Noah, and then Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, all the way to King David, all the way to the Messiah and his people. That's the line, the woman's offspring. And that that phrase, the the woman's seed, the woman's offspring, can refer to a group of people, of God's people. That's how it's used in Romans 16.20. And it can also refer to a particular person, the seed, the offspring, as in Galatians 3.16. And that refers to Jesus. Although the serpent will bruise the Messiah's heel, that is, Jesus dies on a tree, Jesus is the ultimate seed of the woman who will mortally crush the serpent, So first, God curses the snake and promises a snake crusher. That's verses 14 and 15. Second is verses 16 to 19. God punishes the woman and Adam with pain. Let's read it, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, God punished the woman with pain in childbearing. Look at the end of verse 16. What does that mean? Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. I think that Genesis 4-7 helps unlock the meaning of three sixteen because 4-7 uses similar wording. It says this, sin is crouching at the door, Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So here's how the the net Bible translation renders the end of 3.16. I think this is a good translation. You, talking to the woman, you will want to control your husband, but he will dominate you. I think that's a good translation. I think verse 16 means that God punishes the woman with pain and how she and her husband struggle to exercise authority in a marriage. So the woman and the man can sin in different ways in this marriage relationship. So for the woman, instead of gladly following her husband, the woman inclines to sin against her husband in in one of two ways. One, she desires to dominate him by usurping his authority. And the other is she possessively clings to him by wanting him to be more for her than he can. For the man, instead of responsibly exercising headship by lovingly leading his wife, The man selfishly fails to guide and protect his wife in one of two ways. One, he treats his wife in a harsh and domineering manner, as in verse 16. Or he lazily abdicates his authority. He gives that authority to his wife by giving up and giving in. And that's exactly what Adam does in the first six verses of Genesis 3. He fails to guide and protect his wife. Further in this passage, God curses the ground. By cursing the ground, God punished the man with pain in cultivating the ground. So Adam sinfully ate forbidden fruit, and as a result, it's now more difficult to grow food. God created the earth as abundantly productive, and now he has cursed it. And even further, God punished mankind with mortality. Mortality, As a result of physical death, humans return to the very ground over which the snake must now slither. So note this comparison. Verse 19, God says to Adam, you are dust. Now look back at verse 14, what God says of the serpent. Dust you shall eat. You are dust, dust shall you eat. So the phrase eating dust is not about the serpent's diet. It's about the serpent's humiliation and defeat. But I think there's a striking connection here between verses 14 and 19. The serpent eats dust and you are dust. In other words, you are food for the serpent. The serpent wants to eat you. The dragon wants to devour you. You're dragon food. So beware the devouring dragon. That's scene four. God curses the serpent in the ground and God judges the woman and Adam. Scene five is the naming. Adam names his wife Eve. I've been referring to the woman as Eve in this sermon, but it's not until verse 20 that the woman gets that name. Look at verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was or she would become the mother of all living. And if you're using the English Standard Version, you might notice there's a note on verse 20 that's really helpful. It says, Eve sounds like the Hebrew word for life giver and resembles the word for living. That's good. So this raises at least four questions. Question one is, how does verse 20 fit in this story? Verse 20 might seem out of place as you read the story. Because at this point in the story, Eve is not a mother. Chapter four begins, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. But at this point in the story, Eve hasn't conceived. They don't have any children. So why does Adam name his wife Eve? And the answer, I think, is verse 15. Verse 15 contrasts your offspring, that's the seed of the serpent, and her offspring, that's the seed of the woman. So God promises that the woman will have offspring. That's the connection. That's how verse 20 fits in the story. A second question is what is significant about Adam's naming his wife? The significance is at least twofold. One, Adam's act of naming shows that he's trusting what God promised in Genesis 3.15. He's believing what God promised, that he and his wife will have offspring. And two, Adam's act of naming signifies that he has God-given authority. In Genesis 2, 19 and 20, Adam names the animals. And in 2.23, Adam gives his wife the generic name woman, Isha, because she was taken out of man, Ish. And here in 3.20, Adam gives his wife the specific name Eve. Naming his wife signifies that he has God-given authority over his wife. And people in our egalitarian age may freak out that I just said that. Uh, But the Bible teaches both of these truths. One, A man and a woman are equally made in God's image and equally valuable before God. And two, God designed a hierarchy of authority and submission between a husband and his wife. And we don't apologize for a God-designed hierarchy. We're not embarrassed by God's design. We love God's design. The way he designed men and women is brilliant. So we love God and submit to God and we praise him for his good design. Sadly, a husband may sinfully misuse his authority by treating his wife harshly. We hate that. But that doesn't mean that we reject authority altogether. It means that we affirm God's design for a husband to be the head of his family in a way that loves his wife and builds up his children. So if you'd like to study God's design for men and women further, I'd recommend a book to you that I recently reviewed and that Pastor Tom Dodds is currently reading with about 50 or 60 men in our church. The book is called God's Good Design, A Biblical, Theological, and Practical Guide to Human Sexuality by Michael Clary. Check it out. It's good. Question three here. In what sense is Eve the mother of all living? I think there are two senses here. In one sense, Eve is the mother of all humans who would come from her. She's the mother of all humans except for Adam. That's kind of obvious. If you're, if you're a woman, you're a daughter of Eve. But there's a, a more profound sense, I think, uh, an additional layer. Because of the offspring language in verse 15, I think there's a more specific meaning. And that's this. Eve is the mother of all those who would truly live. In this sense, she's not the mother of the serpent's offspring. She's the mother of her own offspring in contrast to the serpent's offspring. She's the mother of all those who are spiritually alive. She's the mother of those who follow the promised deliverer and who would strike and crush the serpent. One more question, number four. What's the connection between womanhood and motherhood? So after God created Adam and Eve, he blessed them and said this in Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. The wisdom are essential to accomplishing that mission because God designed women to be mothers. And before we proceed, I should explain what a woman is because our culture today struggles to answer that simple question, what is a woman? And if you ask what is a woman to a progressive politician or a professor he may squirm and say something like a woman is anyone who identifies as a woman that's a terrible answer you can define woman in three words a woman is an adult human female and god has designed females to procreate to get pregnant and give birth to babies filling the earth with god's image bearers is part of god's grand plan and women are an essential part of this plan because Men can't have babies. Only women can have babies. And Paul highlights this in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says that men and women depend on each other. He says, In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. So here's a, a helpful theological definition of men and women from uh, my friend Bobby Jameson. He says, It's the potential to be a father or mother in both biological and metaphorical senses. To father is not only to procreate, but to provide, protect, and lead. To mother is not only to nurture life physically, but to nurture every facet of life, to care comprehensively and intimately. That's good. So if you are female... You're a daughter of Eve, and that means that God designed you to be a mother. And that includes not only nurturing life physically, but also nurturing every facet of life by caring comprehensively and intimately. And God's design is marvelous. It's a design that women should gladly embrace and not be ashamed of, not be embarrassed of. Women, God designed your body to nurture life. And we love God for his good design. Now, some of you, dear ladies, may be wondering, am I less of a woman if I can't have children? And the answer to that is clearly no. Jesus did not marry. Jesus did not have physical children. And that does not make Jesus less of a man. It doesn't make Jesus inferior to other men. And in a similar way, if God has not provided a husband for you, Or if God has not opened your womb, that does not make you less of a woman. It doesn't make you inferior to other women. And the inability to conceive children is a painful struggle for a woman. This themes all throughout scripture. If you're struggling with infertility, let this painful struggle push you toward God, not away from him. You know that God is your good father, right? As the psalmist says in Psalm 119, you are good and do good. You believe that, right? That God is good and he does good. You know that God loves you and sustains you and will never leave you. So draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. And for those whom God has not given physical children, in Christ you can't have many spiritual children whom you disciple to treasure Christ in all of life. That's nurturing But as Christians deal with any suffering or affliction, we must trust God even when it hurts. So that's scene five, the naming. Adam names his wife Eve. Now scene six, the sacrifice. God clothes Adam and his wife with garments of skins. Verse 21, look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of of skins and clothed them. What does that mean? I'm not dogmatic about what this sentence implies. Some interpreters think it implies only that Adam and Eve lost their status as God's vice regents. Or it means only that God protected Adam and Eve from being vulnerable and that God mercifully mitigated their shame. I think it includes both of those concepts and more. So yes, Adam and Eve would need clothing to protect them from harsh weather in this fallen world outside Eden, the blazing sun and from the freezing cold and pouring rain. But I think the clothing has a deeper significance. Where did the garments of skins come from? Well, the way to get animal skins is from dead animals, which means that God killed animals to cover the guilt and shame of Adam's and Eve's sins. Those animals died for Adam and Eve. So in that sense, this was the first sacrifice. The Bible doesn't tell us what animals the skins came from, but I wouldn't be surprised if when we get to watch the reruns in heaven, I'm I'm thinking we'll have something like that, right? Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the animals or lambs. Just my guess. I, I think this sacrificial death anticipates sacrifices in the rest of the Bible storyline. Animal sacrifice under the Mosaic law. You can read about it in Leviticus 1-7. to The substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus himself, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here's, here's this one more connection that makes me think the garments of skins are picture prophecy of Jesus' sacrifice in our place. Back in verse 6, Eve took of its fruit and ate. So she sinfully desires what God forbids. Then she takes and eats what God forbids. Did those words ring a bell? Take, eat. Sounds like what Jesus said, in Matthew 26, the last, last Supper. He said, take, eat. God the Son undid the Genesis 3 catastrophe in his life, death, and resurrection as the saving sacrifice for his people. And here's further connection to that. When Jesus conversed with the two men on the road to Emmaus, this is after he's risen from the dead, end of, end of the gospel of Luke. Luke twenty four thirty one says, their eyes were opened. That was after Jesus took bread and gave it to them to eat. They took and ate and their eyes were opened. What does that sound like? Genesis 3:7. The eyes of both were opened. But here the, the eye openings are very different. The eye opening in Genesis 3 is a result of sin. The eye opening in Luke 24 is a result of God's undeserved kindness. The second Adam undid what the first Adam did. So if you're not a, a Jesus follower this morning... We pray that God will open your eyes so that you recognize this catastrophe in Genesis 3 and so that you submit to King Jesus. Jesus lived, died, and rose again for sinners like you. And God will save you if you turn from your sins and trust him. He's the snake crusher. That's scene six, the sacrifice. God clothes Adam and his wife with garments of skin. Finally, scene seven, the banishment. God exiles the man from the garden. Let's read verse 22 to the end of the chapter. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore, The Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. I don't have time to go into detail here, so I'll just highlight one insight from this passage. The banishment. The banishment connects to at least three themes in the Bible. Exile and Exodus. Temple and trees. So let me just come up briefly on those three. On exile and Exodus. God banishes his people into exile, and then he will redeem his people from exile again and again. Think of the, the great greatest redemption in the Old Testament is in the book of Exodus, when he redeems his people from their slavery in Egypt. This happens again and again in Scripture. And the climax of this theme in Scripture is when Jesus dies and rises again and saves his people from their slavery to sin. He redeems his people in that sense. Second theme is temple. God banishes his people from his temple, from his presence. There are many parallels between the Garden of Eden and the tabernacle and temple. The most holy place in the tabernacle and temple parallels the Garden of Eden. After God expelled Adam and Eve... From the garden, verse 24, he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In a similar way, the cherubim woven into the inner veil symbolized that sinful humans could not enter the most holy place. The temple theme climaxes in Jesus, and the ultimate temple is in the future, in the New Jerusalem. The, book, uh, the, the Bible ends in Revelation 22, uh, I think it's chapter 21, with this statement. I saw no temple in the city. Why? Because its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. That's another theme you can trace right through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is temple. Here's, here's another one from this passage, trees. I'll just say this. God banishes his people from his presence when they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Trees in the Bible often signify life. Think Psalm 1, the tree, symbolizing uh, the blessed man. Yet Jesus is cursed as he hangs on a tree, on a wooden cross. The kingdom of God is God's rule over his people and the entire created order. And the expanding kingdom of God is like a growing tree, Matthew 13. In the new heaven and new earth, Revelation 22 describes a river that flows through the middle of the city street. On either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There's a lot more to say there. All that to say is there are themes, many of them, in Genesis 3 that go right through scripture. And those are three of them. Exile and Exodus, temple, and trees. That's scene seven, the banishment. God exiles the man from the garden. So we've just considered Genesis three in seven scenes. The test, the failure, the response, the punishment, the naming, the sacrifice and the banishment. Genesis three tells the story of what theologians call the fall or what I'm calling the catastrophe. The catastrophe. A catastrophe is an event that causes great And sudden damage or suffering. Adam's sin plunged us all into sin. Because of Adam's sin, we begin with a sinful nature. We sin because we're sinners. We commit treason against the creator and king of the universe. We are idolaters, so we need a savior. And we can't save ourselves. We need someone to save us. So does this catastrophe have a happy ending? Yes, it does. In the big story of the Bible, God solved the catastrophe with a U catastrophe. J.R.R. Tolkien coined this word, U catastrophe. That prefix, E U, means good. So, U catastrophe means good catastrophe. A U catastrophe is a sudden and favorable resolution of events in a story. The story of the Bible moves from the catastrophe to the you catastrophe, the good catastrophe. The saving work of Jesus is the climactic you catastrophe. Jesus lived, died and rose again for sinners and God will save you if you turn from your sins and trust Jesus. The first Adam's catastrophe is terrible. The second Adam's you catastrophe is glorious. Here's how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. As in Adam, all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In Adam, all die. That's the bad news, the really bad news. But the good news couldn't be better. In Christ shall all be made alive. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for revealing to us the story of the beginning. Thank you for telling us what really happened. It helps us make sense of the mess we're in. We're so grateful that you didn't leave us in our sins. Thank you that Jesus, the serpent crusher, died in the place of sinners like us so that we may truly live. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Sermons Podcast from the North Church. For more information about our church or resources to help you deepen your walk with Christ, Please visit us at the